0: Uh, What's something important that you have a mind to do? Something important you have in mind to do. Everybody just kind of think of something. You know, don't invent something right now that's like, ah, this is, you know, there's this kind of important thing that I kind of been thinking about for a while or that I committed to a while ago. Everybody kind of got something? Uh, Are you doing it? Are you doing it? Yes? Yes. How many of you are like, well, I'm planning to work on it. Um, I used to work on it. Let me ask you specifically, when and how are you working on it? All right, now just to make this real, turn to the stranger to your left and right and share what important thing you have on your mind and when and how you're working on it when and how, specifically, you're working on it. Okay? Just to make it real. This is, we just talk to each other to kind of make it real. If there's nobody sitting around you, you'll have to be bold and go approach some very rude-looking person and share with them a little bit. It's a good warm-up. If you, uh, if you had something important in your mind that you want to do, Uh, then you are human, congratulations. Uh, You want a life that's meaningful and you know almost everybody has in their mind something important that they want to get around to doing. The trick, of course, is getting around to doing it and the real trick is coming up with specific ways to implement it in your life. To get on with it, in other words, and that's always the hard part. And the thing that makes that the hard part is that life pushes back doesn't it? In order to do stuff that you find important, you have to overcome, you have to pierce through all the static, all the chaos in your life, Uh, because life is a competition between important things and other things. Some of those other things are urgent things, and there's just an awful lot to keep track of. There's an awful lot weighing down on you, and from time to time, there are some very real challenges. That press upon you and keep you from getting around to doing important things and vital things, uh, perhaps things that God Himself has called you to do. I learned a lot about this uh, during what was probably the darkest period of my life. I call it my Great Depression. Uh, When I was in my mid-20s, I was just uh, just leveled uh, by, by you know, like you'd call it clinical depression. I had a lot of very tough circumstances hit me in life and um, and just went through a season of tremendous difficulty and it just wore me down, it just wore me down to the bone and I found myself uh, very depressed in such a way that I was you know, like scarcely functional about, about half of the week um, but, uh, but I had important things to do. I was trying to write a thesis at the time, I was working on my PhD, that was one of the things I had to do and I, I have distinct memories of sitting uh, in my little apartment in Chicago and, uh, and thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to pull this off? How in the world am I going to keep going? And so I decided just to be very realistic with myself. It's like, look, I can't be a regular person uh, because I'm feeling so irregular uh, right now. So I'm going to make a deal with myself. I'm going to work on my thesis. I'm going to do my job three hours a day. And here's the deal I'm gonna make with myself, I'm not going to ever work more than three hours a day no matter how good I feel. That, that, was, that was my strategy. All I wanted was three quality hours and I figured that that I could do that and I could muscle up to that every day, you know, like if I had to muscle up to eight hours a day, I, I would have accused myself, I would have said who are you trying to fool saying you're not gonna do that. Three hours you could probably just do on sheer willpower. I've always been a person who had pretty good discipline and pretty good willpower. Uh, so I set about to do that. I made some other deals with myself. It's like I have to make room for, for ministry in my life. Otherwise, you know, why, why should I go on living? I mean, if my life isn't meaningful, if I'm not pursuing godly things, then yeah, I probably should throw myself off the seer sour. So, um, how, how am I going to do that? And that was at uh, a time in, in, in our life, uh, Sonia and I started a little small group Bible study in our apartment. We had a weird apartment. It was like one big loft, uh, just huge open um, uh, apartment. So we started gathering some young people uh, for uh, a Bible study. Well, what happened during those terribly dark years? And it was uh, uh, several years that uh, I woke up every day um, with just darkness and depression on me. Um, I ended up finishing my thesis, like the second fastest person in my whole program, on three hours a day. Uh, Which taught me that it's more important to do something, than to do something perfectly. (laughs) You know, I just had a strategy and I stuck with it and I got done and moved on to, uh, you know, the next uh, postdoc phase and won some fellowships and stuff like that. It turned out amazingly well, considering that I was dysfunctional half of, of the week. And that little Bible study that we started, it started with eight or ten students. It sort of grew to fill our loft apartment, like 40 and 50 people. Eventually, we planted a church out of that group. Of the eight or ten people, most of us students, uh, that started that Bible study, those eight or ten people themselves individually went on to plant another five churches uh, in cities uh, around the world now, stretching from uh, New York to Korea um, not bad for a guy who had to ratchet up his ambition just to brush his teeth in the morning. Um, and it just, it taught me a life lesson that I've, I've never forgotten, uh, which is the, the smartest thing that you could do is to keep going on what you're called to do. You know, no matter no matter how you feel, you know, the, Circumstances are always going to be hard. Perhaps not as hard as those. But if I can do it, I learned. If I can do it in that time of my life, then I can do it in any time of my life. You know, I chip away. Keep grinding. Make hay while the sun shines. You know that country phrase? You know, if it's, if it's raining, it's too late to bring in the hay. The grass is going to be soaked and the hay will mildew and mold. If the sun is out, you got to work just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, whenever there's a gap. I think life is largely occurring in chaos. I think the world is a world of chaos. I think it is out of order. And I think our job as Kingdom people is to bring godly order into the world. You've heard me talk about this a lot. Our job, generally speaking, is to establish order in the midst of a world of chaos and decay. So where there is sickness, we bring health. Where there is injustice, we bring justice. Uh, Where there is estrangement from God, we bring a relationship with God. Where there is loneliness, we bring love. Wherever there is chaos, we bring order. That's what we do. As God spoke order out of darkness at the beginning, we bring order into a world of chaos. We bring the order of life the order of the Creator Himself. All constructive things are hard to do in life. It's always hard to do the good thing that you have in mind to do, but you'll notice that the godly things you have in mind are particularly hard to do uh, because um, we do them in a world, we do them in the midst of life situations, we do them in the midst of a daily hubbub that do not and Do not empower or encourage the godly, orderly things that we want to do. If you do nothing in the world, do you A, drift toward order and health, or B, drift toward disorder and decay? B. Good. Two of you are listening. Excellent. The rest of you have drifted into disorder and decay. Point made. The world contends against what we we want to do. Uh, And the weapons of chaos are, are often, well, they're often intimidating, they're often dark, but they're often subtle. I think the main weapons of chaos are things like vagueness, diffusion, distraction, you know. It's just... The subtle things that kind of wear us down on the edges. We have important things in our mind to do. We have a very godly calling on our life, all of us, and many of us know it very, very well because we talk about things like that often at Blue Water Mission. And it's not that we decide not to do the important things that we're called to do. We just surrender in small bits and pieces until we discover that we haven't quite gotten around to doing the godly important thing that we want to do, right? We never really quit, we just don't get around to it. And that's how chaos defeats us 99% of the time. You know, we find ourselves saying, gee, you know, an awful lot of time has passed and I haven't worked very much at that thing that I decided was super important to do. That's the moment that kind of define chaos winning in our lives. We are by nature sputterers, by which I mean, you know, we get started and then we kind of lose momentum. Then we get started and we kind of lose momentum. Or we're bingers. We do an awful lot in a short amount of time and then we kind of kind of peter out, you know. And what we really need to be in life is just sort of discipline grinding marathon runners. We need to stay at it Day after day, step by step, and that's how amazing things get built in the world. We tend to be half built towers, to use Jesus' phrase. You know, we start a grand thing, but we kind of peter out somewhere in the middle. Most of us, that's kind of the nature of human existence. We are half built towers, and we have plenty of excuses. There's always a way to justify not following through on the stuff that is important for us to do. You know, sure, we, we have purpose. We know that we have purpose. We know that we have meaning in life. We love purpose. We love the fact that, that we can have a meaningful life and that God gives us fruitful things to do. But, you know, we lack, we lack time, don't we? Who here is not too busy? We're all too busy. And we lack, we lack money, don't we? Uh, And we all lack the right people. We don't have the right people around us, do we? Look to your left, look to your right. I mean, no, we don't have the right people around us helping us out. Uh, and, And again, it's not that we've quit exactly. It's just that we haven't quite gotten around to following through. And the life of godliness and purpose relies heavily on what I call the savage art of following through. And I call it a savage art because it takes, in a world of chaos, a bit of savagery to follow through on godly things that nothing in the world encourages you to do. Only God and His voice calling you encourages you to do them. So you have to be a little bit of a savage. You have to be be wild. You have to be different. You have to be a little alien. And it is an art, this following through business. It's an art in the sense that it is an intentional craft. You have to implement it. You have to construct it in your life. The savage art of following through. And in one way, shape, or form, that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. We've been doing this sermon series on the whole arc of the Bible. The Bible from beginning to end in you know, a couple of months' time. Uh, We want to take a look at the Bible at 30,000 feet so that we can look at individual bits of the Bible in context. We're trying to understand the context. So we started at the beginning. We read in the early bits of Genesis the most ancient stories that the human race has, the stories that tell us uh, what the original problem of the human race was. The original problem was that while we knew that God existed, we walked quite closely with Him, we failed to trust that He was good. So the original problem is that we fail to trust God. We are unwilling to take risks on God. That was the original problem of our race. And so God uh, engineered what you might call the original solution. He kind of withdrew a little bit from our lives. So now we have to trust He is good just to believe in Him. We're exercising the trust muscle. That's what life is for. And God gave us a purpose to life. The purpose of life is to grow, to trust God fully. That's the purpose of our life, and that's the purpose that we're trying to to, um, spread in the world. And the ancient stories, the most ancient stories that humanity has are stories about those things, that's really what the book, uh, early bits of the book of Genesis are about. And then we get stories about the first man of faith, this guy named Abraham. Uh, and those stories define for us the, the faith journey, the fact that faith is a journey. And God uh, gave Abraham a mission and said that everybody who followed Abraham would have the same mission, to be a light to the world, to kind of spread the idea that the life of purpose comes with a journey and a mission. We've all been called to achieve something for God uh, in this world. That's about the second major thing that we learn uh, in the Bible. Then we get the Exodus stories, the foundational books of the Pentateuch, the early books of the Bible. uh, And and they're all about what it takes to get free of the world, like the the slaves, uh, the Hebrews uh, being freed from Egypt, what it takes to get free. And it turns out that it's not just circumstantially free. It's easy to free people from bad circumstances, but it's hard to free them from mentalities. And we get a lot of stories about what it takes to move from a slave mentality to a free mentality. That's very hard and that would become a theme uh, through the entire uh, Bible. And then we get some bits about once you're free, what does it take to stay free? And that's where we get the law, Uh, the rules of God, or at least the beginning rules of God. And and right in the midst of the Bible's explaining of the law and the basic rules of life is the sacrificial system, which is a system that God invented uh, to handle our screw-ups. You know, He gives us laws, He gives us rules, and then in the same breath, uh, He gives us a system for managing when we don't keep the rules well. And the sacrificial system was built on grace, this thing called grace, which is a theme that would be developed slowly through the rest of Scripture as well. We get the histories of God's people moving into the promised land and all it took for them to live there. And in a nutshell, what it takes to live in promise is fighting spirit. That God uh, doesn't do things for us simply in the world. He partners with us to get things done in the world most of the time. And to partner with God in this world requires a fighting spirit, a violent spirit. And there are tons of stories about that Trust is always required. When you're fighting life and death battles, trust is an issue. <laughs> Courage is an issue. Courage is another word uh, for trust. We talked about the prophetic books of the Bible, which make a big chunk of the Old Testament. And the prophetic books give us this message. We walk with a God who speaks to us. He is distant in order to exercise our trust muscle, but He does still speak to us. Here's the catch. He speaks to us in a way that requires us to exercise faith to hear. You know, it can be a little bit subtle, it can be a little bit symbolic, which makes sense if you understand that God is speaking to us in a way that is supposed to provoke faith as much as it is to convey information. And I just love that bit of the Bible, the prophetic books. Uh, uh, and then we see the people of God mature a little bit over the centuries, and eventually they develop their own practices, their own best practices. They get the hang of this life of faith, and they start developing techniques to help them on the life of faith. The, uh, for one thing, they develop techniques for learning to learn, and that's really where the book of Proverbs comes come from. When they learn something, they crystallize it down into one sentence or two sentence lessons that can be easily handed down to their children through the generation. That's the book of Proverbs. It's the people of God learning to learn. Life with God is always about learning new things and new lessons. It's never static. That's one thing the Bible teaches us. We get the book of Psalms, which is basically a collection of songs it's, it's, it's a practice that the people of God discovered was, was really helpful to sing together. Why? Well, to make sure that our hearts stay in it. Music and other artful things are such powerful expressions of the heart. Get your heart in it. The Bible is a layered book. And the book of Job, which we took a look at last week, is a powerful presentation of of the problem of why good people suffer in the world. It turns out in the world that your suffering might multiply because you're a righteous person. It's not simple. God is not some gumball machine where you put in righteousness and he dispenses blessings. It's a little more complicated than that. Good people do suffer, and Job suffered rather famously. Uh, We went through it last week. I think it's a beautiful book. Uh, And it tells us that while suffering might destroy many things in your life, suffering can never destroy your purpose. Suffering can never destroy your calling, your meaning. It always goes back to that in the Bible stories. And today we're going to take a look at the very last bit of the Old Testament, uh, which is stories having to do or prophecies having to do with the return from exile. Uh, This is what happened to the children of Israel. They lived in the Promised Land for a number of centuries, but they they never got it right. And as the years went by, they drifted more and more. One particular thing they did is that they didn't take care of the poor among them. They didn't really establish justice in their nation, which really broke God's heart. Another thing they didn't do is that they never kept the Sabbath. They were always so worried about material things that they never allowed themselves to take a day off. They built a culture which was overly busy. And eventually, after many, many prophetic warnings, God says, okay, fine, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a couple big muscular nations into the area, and they're going to conquer you, and they're going to carry you off into captivity. You're going to lose your promised land because that's what you do. If you drift and don't follow through, eventually you lose your promise. Eventually you lose it. You have to go into a time of discipline. So that's what uh, uh the Bible and, and uh, God's people called the time of exile. So literally that's what happened. Um the Assyrians and the Babylonians came into the nation of Israel and just kind of destroyed it, wiped it out. Some tribes were lost forever into history. But eventually, uh some tribes in, in what uh was then the the Persian Empire were allowed to return. And that's, that's a wonderful dramatic story in and of itself how uh, the Israelites, uh, the Jews they were called by then, got to uh, return from their lands of captivity, basically uh, mostly in, in what today is Iran, and return back to Palestine in what today uh, is Israel. Uh, and so back, uh, back they came uh, with, with uh, the Persian king's blessing Uh, The accounts and related prophetic books having to do with the return from exile with the ending of the time of discipline and a return back to the land of promise, they make up about 15% of the Old Testament. So it's a fairly significant chunk of of the Old Testament. Uh, And and indeed, I think the stories are super important. Uh, What they did is that the exiles came back to a land that had been decimated. Uh, and they restored, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They reestablished the city of God's people. They reestablished a, a nation. They basically rebirthed all of the systems having to do uh, with worshiping God, saving some of, the, save some of the sacrificial systems because, for complicated reasons and ritualistic reasons, they weren't able to uh, restore those but other things happened as well. Uh, That's when the synagogue system was established. That's when uh, the school system for God's people was established. That's when people decided, no, we're gonna own our learning. We're not just gonna do these rituals. We're gonna learn about scripture. We're gonna learn about our history. We're gonna learn about our stories. And that's when uh, the Old Testament came together. That's when all of these books and stories were kind of collected. And it's when basically the Bible began to be born. Was during that time. It's it's really when our tradition sort of got started, when the exiles got back. So hugely influential and important moment in time. Here's the problem with the story of the return from exile. The exiles were in captivity, and they got to go back. They were invited to return. Word went out, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back to the land of promise. Who wants to go? And a good fraction uh, of of the exiles in captivity chose to go back. Obviously, not all of them could because it was a significant journey in those days, and if you were very elderly or infirm or very young, it was a hard trip. But a good fraction of them went back, and they went back with zeal. They went back with excitement in a few different waves. However, they did not follow through on their purpose, at least not immediately. They stalled out. For a long time, they didn't do any restoration work on the temple. For a long time, they didn't rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. For a long time, they didn't uh, relearn scriptures or compile their history, their traditions. They went back and they kind of just settled into what had become a very cosmopolitan, mixed-nation area of the world. They just tried to make a living and be friendly with all the various nations and tribes that occupied what was once the promised land. They just got on with life, but they didn't do their purpose. They weren't different. And they weren't being an influence to the people around them. Why did they go back in the first place? Well, I mean, it's exciting. You know, maybe patriotism figured in. There's the rush of having a mission. We're going to go back and restore the purposes of the people of God. It sounds good uh, in the sales office, you know. And then they got on the road, and it was a long journey. And then they got back, and they're living in tents. And what's the first order of business? To be missionaries? No, it seems like the first order of business should be to, to build sensible houses, you know, with, a, with, with nice watering systems, and, you know, we got to get the economy going, and how are we going to raise our kids, and what schools are they going to go to, and, you know, that's what happened. And they kind of forgot the mission because life on its own is hard enough. Chaos took them. That's what happens. And in my opinion, this is where the story gets really postmodern in the sense that for the first time, the people of God were coming into a place of multicultural environment. You know, it wasn't like uh, when they first took the Promised Land where they just swept the decks clear and invented a nation from scratch on a blank canvas. It was like, no, we live in a world of competing ideas and customs and and morals. How do we build a life of difference in the midst of all of that? And that's something that everybody here can relate to, I think. Uh, There's a lot of rich details, a lot of storytelling about what happened during these return from exile years. But here's what it's really about. Here's what this chunk of the Bible is about, in my opinion. It's about how to establish a godly mission in the midst of the pressures of life. Life always happens in the midst of a ton of other things. Purpose only happens in the midst of a lot of other things. We only bring order out of chaos, and that is the most essential skill of the person of God, to bring order and purpose out of the chaos of life. That is the most essential skill for the person of purpose and mission. And that's really what these books are about. you know how do you achieve purpose while making a living? These guys had serious real estate issues. It was hard to live in this place. You know, they had to build homes, and build homes with what, and how do they get things financed, and does anybody who lives on Oahu have any real estate issues? They can relate. You know, but it was like that for them, except times 10. How to fit in with the folks around you because, you know, you came back and said, we're returning from exile. Who are you? We don't even know who you are. This is not your land. This is our land. What, what's going on? You want to influence us to follow the one true God? What about our gods? What about our choices? What about our opinions? And there's a pressure to kind of get along with the people around you. How do you be different in the midst of, of all of that? They had huge dating issues. There's a huge issue about like, you know, We've come from afar and you know, we, didn't, we didn't bring a lot of, of eligible women with us, so maybe we should you know, start dating around uh, from these other nations, these other tribes. There was some intermarriage and that led to trouble because you had these interfaith marriages and they almost always descend to the least common denominator of faith. You know, that was a big problem. There's all this political intrigue because uh, the political leaders uh, in the land around them did not appreciate them coming in and trying to establish a different sort of community. It was an immigrant saga. I don't know. You read anything about immigration in the papers recently? Any issues having to do with that? Well, this was that, but times 10. Um, Then there was military threats as... The political leaders around the returning Jews were like, you know what? We're just going to kill you, because I remember stories that my grandfather told about how you Jews used to attack us back in the day. You know, it's like, hey, we remember this thing called the Crusades. You know, it might have happened centuries ago, but we don't trust you, people of faith. Um, So we're just going to kill you. We're going to assassinate you, and you you could spend your whole life dealing with life issues, you know, just trying, trying to deal with life and trying to, trying to find a little me time, you know. And the question is, how do you take a people who face a lot of legitimate life complications and turn them into a mission force? And that's kind of really what we do every Sunday, isn't it? Uh, some great uh, summary verses that are in your program. Uh, the first one comes from the book of Haggai. Haggai. Anybody pregnant? I was trying to sell these prophetic names because it'd be so cool to have a little kid in the church named Haggai. Think of the nicknames. Well, Haggai was uh, it's one of the prophetic books uh, written uh, during this period of the return from exile. And God raised up this prophet named Haggai. We actually don't know very much about him, uh, but he was recognized as a prophet. And 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 this was sort of God's prophetic voice to the people in that day. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, uh, the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel was sort of, you think of him as the heir to the old Jewish kings, you know, so he was kind of set up he was the guy that was supposed to provide leadership and be in charge. He was the symbol of days of past glory. But Zerubbabel had gotten kind of stalled out. He had returned from exile. But he was like, "Yeah, I don't know. There's so many people to please. I just don't know what to do. And the word of Haggai came to him uh, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, this temple, remains a ruin? Now, is what, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. It goes on to say, uh, are, are you not noticing that the fields aren't producing the proper crops, that your purses are empty, that really you're not very satisfied in life. It's kind of a roundabout poetic way to describe it, but this is what was happening. Uh, The people under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua got back uh, from exile into the promised land and and they tried to provide for their families. They built their own houses, uh, paneled houses, they were called. It's like, you know, we don't want to live in tents, we want, we want nice houses, like regular people. And it's hard to have a nice house in a, in a very competitive urban environment like they were living in. You know, they, they had some legitimate needs for themselves, for their family, for their children. But God spoke prophetically and said, look, purpose first, everything else second. Some centuries later, Jesus would eventually say, seek first the kingdom and all else will be added unto you. You know, Then your fields will be fine and you'll have money in your purse. You want a purpose-driven life, people. Don't work on solidifying your circumstances and then get around to your life calling eventually. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. You're not too busy. You're not too poor. You're not too alien. You're not too lonely. Purpose first. That's what God was saying prophetically. God is defining for His people through the prophet Haggai what you might call a deliverable. It's like, you know, look, you can do housework. Uh, that, that's fine, but don't let it distract you from, for instance, building my, my temple, building my church. You know, I can look at the ruins of the temple and know that you're really not attending to purpose at all. You don't have to ignore your own houses, but here's a deliverable for you. I want this thing built. I want it built. And it's God sort of providing a routine and a structure, a plan uh, for them. Um, another sort of encouragement came through the prophet Zechariah. You see Zechariah four ten there, and this is basically the Lord speaking through the prophet Zechariah again kind of to Zerubbabel, but also to the other leaders uh, of the returning community in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, And it says in the NIV, Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord reigns throughout the earth, um, the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. I really don't like the way the NIV translate this. Uh, In the older translations, it used to say, um, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Uh, The Lord looks across the land and rejoices when he sees the plumb line or the carpenter's level in the hand of Zerubbabel, which is a very roundabout symbolic way of saying, um, I know it seems daunting right now. I know when you're looking at the ruins of the temple, you think, wow, we're going to never get this done. There are just too many broken stones. There's just too much to do. And that's an experience that we have often in life. Like, I want to do this important thing. I want to get my life to this fruitful sort of place. It's hard to start, (laughs) right? Because it, it takes so much to get there. And this is the Lord speaking prophetically to his people and says, you know, no matter how, far the journey is, no matter how much work there is to do, it it always starts with one step, doesn't it? It always starts with the small things or the small beginnings, as some translations say. Do not despise the day of small things. Don't think that you have to work at it for six months in order to be accomplishing something. The, The thing that you do on the first day is as amazing and as valuable as the thing that you do on the last day of your project. It's just that you have to do them in a certain order, <laughs> right? And that's kind of common sense advice, but it's also godly advice. The most important thing to do at the beginning of any project is to get started. And to not talk yourself down because you have so far to go. Never hesitate to start. Never hesitate to start. That's an important life principle. Never hesitate to start. And that's more critical on faith journeys than on other sorts of journeys, because on faith journeys, we don't even necessarily know what the end product will be. We just know that we're called by God to get moving. Never hesitate to start. I love the 90-second testimony we got from Chris and Jenna. Uh, before um, the sermon started during the announcement period. They came to, vi- to visit Blue Water on their first day. They're thinking, yeah, we kind of need to find a community of faith. They show up their first day, immediately decide that this is a cool place. Well, yeah. And then immediately after the service, they go to the newcomer's class that's being offered. Uh, and you know, a short while after that, Um, they uh, are in an Ohana group. They sign up they go to the Holy Spirit retreat. I was at that retreat. I happen to know they had some powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit. They didn't hesitate to get started. And uh, the first step is a part of of every good uh, testimony. But I think the most definitive uh, Scripture from uh, all of these return from exile stories uh, perhaps comes in the book of of Nehemiah. There were two standout leaders during this uh, time of the return from exile, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, you can think of him as sort of a a priest, sort of a spiritual leader for the people. Nehemiah was sort of a government worker uh, in Persia, and he came back and he was really good at bringing order and strategy uh, to the exiles. They were two leaders. We get their personal stories, one in the book of Ezra, the other in the book of Nehemiah. That's really easy to figure out. Uh, They were two leaders struggling to get their people to move forward in their calling. Not just to survive in a troubled and busy land, but to actually get on with their purpose. And we read of their lack of support. There was a lot of intrigue among the Jews themselves. People argued about what was important and what they should be doing first. Uh, They had a tenuous political position because they had come back to lead the exiles by the grace of the Persian king. But people were trying to, uh, once they left, they were trying to poison the king's opinion of them. And and they were accusing them of saying, oh, you don't care what the king thinks. You're just trying to set up your own little political fiefdom here. You're trying to do your own thing. Wait till I tell the king on you. He's going to send his army to destroy you. All of these intrigues. There was temptation to make friends uh, with the uh, leaders from the other nations around. Um, And and basically, the other leaders were saying, uh, compromise with us or we'll kill you. There were some assassination plots and things like that. I mean, some real serious challenges that these leaders were facing. And the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about following through in a messy and demanding time the savage art of follow-through. One thing they had to do was to build the wall around Jerusalem. That was sort of job one, because once they got the wall up, then they didn't have to be afraid of surrounding nations coming in with their armies and destroying all the rebuilding that they were doing. They had to build their defensive framework. They had to work on their boundaries, first of all. Uh, So how are they going to do that? And Nehemiah eventually came up with this strategy. If he organized people into family groups, and then they would take shifts building uh, the wall. Uh, But they faced a constant military threat. Uh, So, uh, eventually it would say in Nehemiah 4, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work, with one hand and held a weapon in the other. You have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other and that's kind of how life was for a while. I feel like that sometimes. I feel like with one hand I'm trying to be productive, with the other hand I'm handling crises. Anybody relate? Um, And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. It was just sort of this organization for building purposefully in the midst of crisis and emergencies. I think there's a great life lesson in there. He organized properly. He said, we just got to do this and our circumstances are what they are. We can't control those, but doggone it, here's what we can control. We can stay on point. We can stay on purpose. That sort of activity really made the surrounding nations upset. And a couple uh, of leaders, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, were made famous by the story surrounding tribal leaders, uh, really started to be threatening. From Nehemiah 6, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates yet, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me So I sent my messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Here's the verse. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, the same threatening message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Why should I interrupt this important stuff that I'm doing to go make nice with you? That's not on my agenda. Then the fifth time Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, everybody's saying that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt against the king in Persia, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. We heard there are prophets speaking, and we're pretty sure they're in on your coup plot. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king in Persia. So come, let us meet together. They're threatening them. If you don't make nice with us, if you don't compromise with us, then we're going to tell the king on you, and he's going to kill you. I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for their work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And I just think this is a great statement of how chaos works. Chaos doesn't come to you and say, stop what you're doing, your purpose is not important. Chaos comes to you and say, this is gonna cause a lot of trouble. Let me distract you for a while. You know, I, I, I'm not trying to stop you, what, what, what I'm doing is a, well, it's a peace conference. Just come and spend a lot of time conferring with us, and we're going to work out how you can do your purpose and not really cause too many waves. That's what chaos does, it diffuses, it sucks away your energy. And I love this statement at the end. Uh, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. And that's basically what chaos tries to do with us. It's what chaos is trying to do with you. You have important work to do, I'm not going to dissuade you from doing your work. I'm just going to leave you no energy to do your work. You know, you just, you're going to run out of time. You're going to run out of, out of blood sugar. Things are going to be too busy. A car horn is going to go off while you're talking about chaos and distract everybody, so they're not listening to you. This is how chaos works, people. Uh, It is, I promise you. I know that's not my, my car, because my car is too old to have an alarm. One of the ways in which I stay on purpose in life. Sometimes the universe just hands you a metaphor. The hardest thing to do in life is is not to believe. The hardest thing to do is to live out belief with purpose and action. The best thing in life is not to believe. The best thing in life is to live out your belief with purpose and action. Here's some tips for exercising purpose in a world of chaos. They're all Exercises in resisting distraction, which is what you need uh, to live in a postmodern culture. It's what you need if you're in exile trying to reboot purpose in your life. Tip number one don't, dismi- don't despise small things. The most important thing you need to do right now, if you're trying to get moving in a life of order, is to do the first things. What's the first thing that you have to do? That, that's by far the most important one. Get started immediately. Get started immediately in life. Uh, I have a saying, a little personal proverb that, that really doesn't make sense unless you explain it. So it's kind of a bad proverb. Uh, but my proverb is, start on Thursday. See, I told you, it doesn't really make sense unless you explain it. Uh, Start on Thursday, because what's what's the day day when you start things? The day when you start your new diet or your new routine? Yeah, Monday. You know, Monday is a good day to start things because it's the beginning of the week and, you know, Mondays suck anyway, so, you know, you might try to implement your new regimen on Monday. Uh, so Mondays are pretty good to start a uh, day of the week to start something. Or if it's not Monday, then Wednesday is good. You know, Wednesday, we call it hump day. It's sort of that dividing uh, point in the week where you've kind of taken care of your urgent ch- chores and you now kind of have some space in the middle. Uh, you know, it's good to have meetings on Wednesdays and stuff like that. So Wednesday is a pretty good day to start. Or, you know, it's nice to start on the weekend where things are slowing down. Uh, You don't have to get up early in the morning, so Friday, Saturday would be good. Sunday is officially the first day of the week, so that's not a bad day to start. You know what day sucks to start on? Thursday. There's no reason to start anything on Thursday. You could make an argument for Tuesday, but somehow Thursday sounds better in the proverb. Um, So always start on Thursday is my way of saying just start. Just start now you know, start at the wrong time. And if you master the art of starting at the wrong time, if you master the art of doing purposeful things at the wrong time in your life, then nothing will ever stop you. Are you following me? Start on Thursday. Go ahead, write that down. Nick, I want to see that tattooed on somebody's shoulder by the end of the year. Start on Thursday. Uh, Number two, uh, you have to develop a community of purpose. You have to rally people to hold you accountable. You do. Why? Because you're human. Admit it. Right? So you want people in it with you. Uh, The most the most advantageous thing about having a gym membership is when you go to the gym, you feel stupid if you don't exercise. Right? If you go to the gym, if you sit in front of the TV, and why do they have TVs at the gym? That's another subject. But if you just go there sit in front of the TV and drink an energy drink and do nothing, people will eventually get on to you and you feel really stupid. So the gym is a place of positive peer pressure. When you go, you're going to do something. If for no other reason than you feel stupid not to. Well, that's the kind of community of purpose that you want in your life. You want people that know what your calling is, that know what you're trying to accomplish spiritually. And you want them to to be with you every week, to kick your butt. We work so hard to make Ohana groups communities of purpose. They're not just places where you go to kind of fellowship with other people and get to know other people, although that's wonderful. It's wonderful to have friends in life. But if you go to one of our Ohana groups, you will encounter a culture of purpose. Right? People will ask you, well, what are you doing? How are you following through any of that? What's important? And eventually, you'll kind of feel a little bit stupid if you're not moving on your purpose. You might feel stupid enough just to leave the Ohana group, which happens. Uh, but hopefully it's friendly enough and the relationships are rich enough that you're discouraged from doing that. So get, get yourself into uh, one of our Ohana groups. Maybe that's the first thing uh, that you want to do. Thirdly, you want to organize yourself for purpose. And I put it that way, organize yourself for purpose. It is really not hard to find out what your life calling is. I've talked about that before. You can go refer to past sermons or in the next two weeks when we uh, talk about the New Testament and the Jesus teachings and the Jesus revolution, we'll be talking about your life calling. It's actually rarely difficult to, to figure out what you're called to do in life. It's pretty easy uh, for me to do that with people that I meet with, which is not to say you should all make an appointment to come into my office and talk to me, because you don't need that. Um, but, but anyway, just to say that's not really the issue. It's not hard to define your specific purpose. Um, the key lies in what you do to make your daily life reflect what your whole life is about. The key lies in what you do to make your daily life reflect what your whole life is about. you got to get organized. You know, maybe you got to do work with one hand and hold a sword in the other. Maybe you have to split your time. Maybe you have to schedule it on your daily calendar to attend to emergencies during these hours, but to attend to purpose during these hours. And don't go talking to Ballot and Tobias and Gershom when they try to interrupt your purpose time. Because you are the only one who can control your schedule when it comes right down to it. Time is your number one resource. Organize yourself for purpose. You gotta have routines. You've got to have routines. How many many people are sick of hearing me talk about routines? It's a routine I have to talk about routines. Uh, I'm going to do it every once in a while. And I'm going to ask you what your routines are. Routines and rituals. What do you do every day to get yourself up, to get yourself going? And what, what is in your schedule to make sure that you work on your purpose and calling every day? If you can't answer those questions, hopefully by the end of this sermon series, uh, you will. But here's today's biggie, and we'll close with this. Recognize distractions for what they are. There are lots of challenges in life. There are lots of challenging circumstances. Let me give you an important distinction. Let me give you a definition that will change your life if you understand it and embrace it. A challenge becomes a distraction when it gets you to put off your purpose. A challenge becomes a distraction when it gets you to delay doing your purpose. So it's a distraction, it's not an out and out defeat, it doesn't get you to give up, it just gets you to delay. And lots of life challenges do that. Here are challenges we have. We have a challenge to make a living. We have challenging real estate issues, uh, don't we? Uh, We might have challenging relationships or we might have the challenge of an absence of certain relationships. Uh, We might have the challenge of accusations of various sorts. And those can all be challenging. They're only distractions if they cause you to delay your purpose today. Are you distracted by the need to make a living? Have you let it become a distraction instead of merely being a challenge? Are you delaying the purposeful thing that you have in mind to do? Are you distracted by real estate issues, by the paneled walls of your houses, by housework, by daily chores? We all have to do them. But do they cause you to delay the important purposeful things you have in mind to do? And if they cause you to delay it, then they're a distraction. Uh, Relationships. Romance is such a huge potential distraction because there's something about it that consumes our whole uh, attention. And then if the romance doesn't work out and you break up, well, that's even worse. That just takes you out of the game forever. Um, And romance can be wonderful and it can be challenging. My question is, are you letting it distract you? Or maybe you're dealing with something more severe like I did back in the day, just sort of a life threatening near suicidal depression. That's a challenge. The smartest thing I ever did is that I didn't let it become a distraction. It was a life threatening challenge but I found, a way not to, I, I found a way to implement purpose in my daily life, right? I didn't let it become a distraction. You understand the difference? Challenge versus distraction. So important. What's distracting you? We'll just end on that question. What's distracting you? Or are you one of those people who have just given themselves over to a general state of distraction? which so many of us do in life. It's our face in a screen, distracted every moment of every day by all these opportunities. What's distracting you?